So, in all honesty, as we do this, I'm pouring myself a glass of Pinot. Are you enjoying yourself a drink? Yeah, I have a little beer next to me. Very nice. Did you go for the pumpkin? Yeah, it's a Rhodes Mary's baby. Yeah, so I've been... I couldn't resist. You told me about that when we recorded last, and I've been looking for it everywhere. Like, I've gone to, like, three different liquor stores for them to try and order it, and it seems to be impossible at the moment. Yeah, I got it at a Kroger in Ohio. Mm-hmm. on my way back to Maryland from uh, a wedding. And I think it's from a place in Connecticut, but I bought it in Ohio. And, you know, it's called Rosemary's Baby. So I love the name right away. And the, the image on the can is like a, a baby stroller that's been made out of like a jack-o'-lantern. So it was very much my shit. So I bought it. And I'm not crazy about like pumpkin stuff. Um, but I actually really do like this beer, so I recommend it if you're a, a pumpkin person. Very nice. And we're in, like, the weird little twinsy mode doing um, movie-themed drinks, in a way, because I am currently drinking from Crystal Lake Campfire, which is from um, uh, Adrian King, the original Survivor, a.k.a. Alice, in the first Friday the 13th movie. So I ordered some of her wines for this Friday the 13th pop-up bar that I'm doing here in Cleveland, and I decided to open up her Pinot Noir. So this one is called Crystal Lake Campfire, and it's got her character on the canoe in the lake, and it's actually really fucking good. So the first final girl from Friday the 13th has a winery? Yes. So... Um, she works with Valley View Wines in Oregon and designs all of these um, wine labels and artwork for them. And it's called the Crystal Lake Wine Line. So she like signs them and brings them, you know, you can order them from anywhere in the country. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying the Crystal Lake Campfire. She's also got cabin a savion if you get the little cabin a there mm. um chiller white moonlit moonlit chardonnay and then Voorhees vengeance viognier is another one that's in my um possession but outside of that she does like a survivor syrah and midnight killer merlot but uh yeah it's the first time i've been able to try it and i gotta say this um pinot noir is fucking delicious yeah, I need to get my hands on a, a few of those. Yeah, so it's really – I'm going to sound like an infomercial here. Um, it's really nice because if you go to her website – I'll actually send you the link here personally when we're done. Um, you have to order a minimum of four, and they're, they, it's about 100 bucks. Um, but there's also no sales tax in the state of Oregon, so you're not paying all this extra money for the shipping and all that. But if you buy um, – like a case of six or mix and match or whatever, you actually get 13% off. So it ends up being like 130 bucks for six bottles of wine. Okay. So it's delicious. And they've got like a camp blush as well. And it's really cool because, um, uh, you know, we're doing this Friday the 13th uh, pop-up bar. So, you know, she signed the bottles because most of these, well, all of these bottles except for the Pinot, the Pinot's mine, um, are going towards the... Uh, the pop-up and uh she was really cool because she donated like signed merchandise from the movie for these baskets we're doing so i have all this friday the 13th stuff just like scattered out through my apartment at the moment that's pretty rad 
Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it's getting me in the Halloween mood. The only thing that's not getting me in the Halloween mood is that now all of a sudden Cleveland wants to be a thousand degrees and Mother is not happy because of it. No, no. Mother does not like to sweat. Mother is not a sweater, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, other than that, yeah, it's it's uh, pretty nice. Oh, I saw Palms last night. Have you seen this yet? I actually just watched that like a week ago. Okay. So what are your thoughts on it? Or do you want me to go first? Um, so the definite standout is, of course, Jackie Weaver. Yes. Um, I thought the movie itself was fine. I enjoyed it perfectly okay. It's a nice little Saturday afternoon movie. But mm. Jackie Weaver was the runaway success of this entire movie for me. Uh, yes. She's hilarious. Um, she has such a charisma to her that I just wish I had. Yeah, Jackie Weaver is fantastic in Palms. I am very surprised that there is no type of Oscar buzz for her for this. But, I mean, I understand, too, how the business works, because it came out in in May. It didn't do really well at the box office. It came and went. Um, but, I mean, the Oscars have gone very out of the box before, so I'm kind of hoping something can pick up, because she is amazing in this. Mm-hmm. Um, she was definitely my favorite. And the ending actually made me cry. Yeah, I was actually a little uh, moved by it, too, in a weird way. Like, mm-hmm. as soon as it, like, I don't want to spoil anything, but the, the image of the firework, like, got to me. I don't think that's yes. spoiling anything. But No, no, but yeah. it's not. I agree. The image of the firework and then Jackie's were doing this for speech, like, mini speech at the end. That's what got me, because it was just, like, it was, like, a realistic take on that actual type of uh, event instead of just, you know pulling a movie thing and just being like, everything's okay. Yeah. So I enjoyed it though. It was nice seeing Pam Greer and Diane Keaton and everyone back out Mm -hmm. there doing things. Yes. Most definitely. I wish though Pam Greer, like she would get more to do. Me too. I mean this, just in general, I think she's great. And of course, you know, love her and Jackie Brown, but Mm -hmm. you know, like what has she had? And this is not her fault, but, like, I mean, what has she had super significant since Jackie Brown? Right. I mean, the, the L word. The movie industry has not been very kind to her the last few decades. No, not so bueno. Um, But, so, yeah, we're together here on a very special bonus episode. And do you think it's time? Okay. Have we kept the children waiting? Sure. So, Brandon, why don't you tell us, tell them what we're t- going to talk about today? So we thought it would be really fun to talk about the boys for once. Um, We haven't really been doing that very much. And we were trying to pick a a year that was pretty fun. And we decided on 1974, the year of The Godfather Part 2, Lenny, Murder on the Orient Express, um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, just to name a few. So it's a pretty fun year. Got some really big names here. Some uh, popular actors getting their first oscar recognition so it's a it's a pretty exciting year for the boys i would say let's hear it for the boys um absolutely i've been dying to get into a boys category just because like you know we finally found our groove um it does take time for every podcast i feel you know we're not shy on saying we kind of both hate the pilot episode and like um you know it's it's so funny because we, I feel for us, we finally got our groove at the end of the 70s and the bonus episodes in between one and two. And then second season went really well. And then like, I'm like, okay, now I wonder how it would sound if, would we have that same type of charisma, uniqueness, nerve and talent 
for a boys episode, and now we get to find out. Mm-hmm. So I will say right off the bat, um, for me, this episode gave me two things for the very first time. Number one, out of all ten performances, there is not a singular one I dislike. All ten I find to be really good. Also, this is, I'm not going to say what it is yet, but there is going to be a major first for me ever with this lineup. Oh, boy. But you have to wait until the rankings, find out what it is. Is it a three-way tie? I don't know what it is. You'll have to wait till the rankings okay. to find out what it is. Okay. But um, what are your thoughts on my comment for the first one there? What do you think? I think this is a really good year. Um, I think each of these performances has something going for it. Um, there's, of course, you know, some that I like better than others. But uh, I wouldn't say there's an outright terrible performance in any of these nominations. No, not at all. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited. I think this is a good year. We, it's a pretty star-studded year, actually. Some yeah. uh, up-and-comers who would go on to become major stars uh, pop up in 1974. And some legends who popped up for the first and only time. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I was doing a little bit of homework. I couldn't believe that it was yeah. some people's only time ever being recognized. Yeah. Well, without further ado, shall you take it away? All right, your nominees for Best Supporting Actor in 1974 were... Fred Astaire in The Towering Inferno. Jeff Bridges in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Robert De Niro in The Godfather Part 2. Michael V. Gasso in The Godfather Part 2. Lee Strasberg in The Godfather Part 2. All right, let's start with our winner for the year. That's Robert De Niro winning for The Godfather Part 2. This is his first of seven nominations and his first of two wins. He does not win anything major going into this, but he is recognized with the New York Film Critics Circle, and he will go on to be nominated for a BAFTA the next time around. So in The Godfather Part Two, he plays Vito Corleone, the young version of the Marlon Brando character from the first film. And in Part Two, we see him basically go from a nobody in 1920s New York to a powerful crime boss. So how do you feel about Robert De Niro in Godfather Part Two? I'm actually really excited that you did De Niro first because, like, for the listeners, we don't know which order each person is, you know, starting with. So I'm actually really excited you did this one because I, like most cinephiles, have a huge soft spot for the Godfather series. Um, And the the sequel, you know, a lot of people do agree that this is one of the few sequels that outdoes the original. Um, Regarding Bob, though... I am very shocked to hear that he did not win a single thing going into it really outside of that one critics award. Um, But with how good he is, this is a clear case of category fraud for me. Um, The Godfather part two is really two movies in one. It is the continuation of the Corleone family from the first um, chapter, which is obviously part one. And then there's the prequel. So neither of those stories really intertwine at any point to be one story. So I, yeah, so these are two stories that never intertwine. They're two separate ones. With that said, focusing on Bob, he is amazing. And I would honestly argue that he probably does Vito Corleone better than Marlon Brando. And I know that's pretty bold. But he's got a lot more to do as the character. You're, he's really setting up what Vito becomes. 
And there is not a singular moment in this movie when I'm watching it, even before he officially becomes, quote unquote, the Godfather, that I'm not terrified of this man. It's so unfortunate, though, that they decided to put him in supporting because he is half of the movie. He's his own story. Yeah, I don't um, I don't think it's that bold to say that he outdoes Brando. I don't think it's that unpopular of an opinion, actually. I think Godfather 2 gives De Niro more to do than Godfather 1 gives Brando. Of course, Brando turned out a legendary performance that has, of course, stood the test of time, just as the movie itself has. But um, Vito's evolution throughout part two, I would say is probably a little bit more um, perhaps challenging for an actor, and it gives him a little bit more of a narrative build, and we actually see a change in the character over time in a way that we don't really get as much in Godfather Part 1. So I definitely understand what you're saying there. Um, I think he is marvelous here. Um, I love watching De Niro change over the course of this movie. I'm okay with him being in supporting because I think the veto section is actually secondary to what's going on in the present day. I think it's entirely um, necessary in order to give us um, some context as to what's going on in the present. And it really shows you um, the gravity of everything that's going on in the present and how much is at stake for Al Pacino's character, how much his family has built the sort of um, dynasty or legacy that they have built over time and just how important it is to them and how far they would fall if everything were to fall apart. So it's entirely necessary for the story. But I do think that the veto stuff is sort of secondary and even though De Niro is leading that section, I still find it okay that he is supporting to Al Pacino's lead. That's understood. I mean, he won here, so clearly you're not alone in that thought. For me, it just, if you take away the veto storyline, you have literally, an, I don't know what, maybe an, a hundred minute movie or an 80 minute movie. I don't, I don't think that know. much of it takes place in the past. See, I feel like there's, it's a whole, like you could literally chop off the second, like the veto stuff and it's its own film. Yeah, you could definitely do them as their own smaller films, but I think the majority of it takes place in the present with in the Al Pacino timeline. Uh, definitely a solid chunk of it takes place in the past, but I don't think it's, I think the present outweighs the past in terms of minutes. Heard, heard. I think I'm a little, I'm also a little miffed though here because with as transcendent as Bob De Niro is, um, I would have loved to see him in the lead category and had John Cazell in this spot um, mm. because what Cazell is bringing to the table, which unfortunately we, we're not really getting the chance to do a full section on here, is magnificent. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy with this win. I'm glad that if he was going to win somewhere, at least for a first nomination, this was a good one for him. Yeah, of course. So, I dig okay. it. Yeah, anything else on De Niro? Mm-mm. All right, next we have Jeff Bridges, nominated for Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. This is his second of seven nominations, previously up for The Last Picture Show in 1971. And he gets no wins or nominations going into this. And, in fact, his Oscar nomination is this movie's only awards recognition. This movie gets no other awards anywhere else besides Jeff Bridges at the Oscars. And in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Bridges plays Lightfoot, 
the new young sidekick to the bank robber Thunderbolt, played by Clint Eastwood. So thoughts on Jeff Bridges and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. So talk about, for me, another category fraud performance here, because Bridges is a co-lead. I mean, he's in the entire thing. But And I've said this recently, too. I am not a huge fan of Jeff Bridges. I, actually, we talked about it when we recorded Class of 93. But he is wonderful here. I really, really like him. I was very surprised that uh, watching Thunderbolt and Lightfoot that this movie isn't more popular. Um, because it is so much fun. It is also super gay. This movie, oh, yeah? Yeah, I texted you while watching it that this movie was so gay. There's so many gay undertones. There's the drag, there's the uh the the kissing the uh, um the fake kissing of the guys. There's this weird sexual undertone when Thunderbolt and Lightfoot first get together. I mean, it's very gay in my opinion. Um Bridges though is so much fun in this. He's like he's he's a comedic relief without being too over the top um serious when he needs to be and just all around really good. I think this is a great nomination, and I'm surprised he's the Diana Scarwood of this lineup, being the film's only only thing for it. Right. Yeah, I really enjoyed him in this, too. Um, he definitely has that trademark Jeff Bridges charisma that he brings to most of his performances. You know, that charisma that would go on to become, like, his signature energy. Um, but I think it's really working for him here. Um I can definitely see what you're saying with the queer undertones. This movie is definitely playing with the the fraternal nature between these male characters in a very um, fun way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Jeff Bridges spends a solid chunk of this movie in drag because he's supposed to be like in disguise as a woman. And it's it's pretty fun. I mean, I don't know if I quite believe the disguise. I don't know if I believe that the person they were tricking believed it. But I was going along with it because it was just so damn fun. Um, I think Jeff Bridges should have made a career out of drag. I don't know. It would have been a maybe. There's there's an alternate universe where Jeff Bridges is like the quintessential drag queen, and I'm living for it in spirit. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you. He is absolutely a co-lead in this movie. Um, he's it's not even like he's a major supporting part. He is there is no question in my mind. He is a co-lead with Clint Eastwood. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't belong in this category, but it is um, a really nice performance that he's turning out here. Yeah, I would agree. It's um, I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not a huge Bridges fan, but this one actually really like I truly enjoyed what he was doing here. And again, I think it's just all around fun. It's just a fun movie. Yeah, like it doesn't surprise me that this movie didn't get in anywhere with critics or awards because it doesn't seem like that kind of movie. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's a mostly frivolous buddy bank robbers kind of movie, um, you know, directed by your guy Michael Cimino, who'd go on to do uh, Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter, yep. Right. So, um, and he had I think he'd either just done a Dirty Harry movie or he was just about to. I can't remember. But um, so he was you know he was a major player back in the day. But it doesn't surprise me that Bridges was the only recognition, considering this movie just doesn't seem to have that sort of feel to it. But I think it's a perfectly fun nomination. Too bad he's in the wrong category. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know, again, you didn't feel that way with uh, Rob Robert De Niro, but 
for me, starting off this talk with two category frauds is so interesting because it's like, okay, for me, I was like, how do I rank these? Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what you do with this and what I do with this for sure. Right. Anything else on Jeff Bridges? No. Okay. Next we have Michael V. Gazzo, the from The Godfather Part Two. This is his first and only nom- nomination, and this is his only awards recognition. If you go on his IMDb page, his only awards recognition is his Oscar nomination. And in uh, The Godfather Part Two, Michael V. Gazzo plays Frankie Pintangeli. I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, he is a capo in the Corleone syndicate. He wants to push Michael harder uh, to rail against those who are sort of interfering on their turf while also having some ulterior motives. So thoughts on Michael Vigazzo in The Godfather Part Two? So I really, really enjoy this character. I really, really enjoy what Michael is doing with that. Um, it, his character always takes me by surprise, too. Do you remember when we talked about, like, the color purple and we're like, oh, my God, does Seeley cut Mr. and we forget every time? Right. That's kind of what happens with me, in a way, to this character every time I revisit The Godfather Part Two, because I'm like, oh, my God, they killed him. Nope, surprise, bitch. He's still alive after that, that attempt. And it's such a refreshing thing because I do forget it every time. Um, but this character is really interesting. Number one, he looks like my uncle. I'm not even going to lie. He <laughs> looks exactly like my uncle. Um, but you know, he starts off as like this drunk lush and he's, he, he needs a favor and then he gets an assassination attempt and then he kind of comes back with like a fuck you vengeance. And then just like, there's a lot going on with this character in the form of layers and Gatso is able to really sell each layer. Again, the drunk who needs a favor, the almost dead, the coming back. I mean, it's, it's such a great performance that I'm, this is, again, surprising. This is his only thing he was nominated for. Right. I think the realm of The Godfather is so big. I mean, you had so many people to choose from that his nomination almost feels like a um, coattail nomination, but a very much deserved coattail nomination. I, I'm glad somewhere somebody was able to be like, yep, let's get him on this ballot. And they did it. So good for them. Good for him. Yeah, I don't actually have a problem with this nomination whatsoever. I can see how some people would see it as the coattail if you had to pick one, considering, like you were saying, how vast this is and how many people are in this. Like, this, mm-hmm. like Godfather Part Two would be, like, the surefire SAG award of the year. Like, I don't yeah. know what other movie, maybe Murder on the Orient Express would pretend like it had a chance, but it didn't. But, um, yeah, I think Gotso is really good here. Um, I, it had been a long time since I had seen Godfather Part Two. And watching it again for him, it was so interesting watching his first exchange with Michael, because this movie is very complex, and each of the characters within it are deeply complex, and there is so much going on. And if you're not really paying attention, sometimes you can easily become lost. And Mm. in that first exchange with um, Frankie and Michael, I was picking up on his ulterior motives right away. Like, you yeah. can definitely see there's something going on inside this character. He's trying to manipulate Michael. And it's not that Gatso is showing or he's overacting in a way. He's acting in a way that I think is very authentic to someone who is trying to go secretly toe-to-toe with someone like Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. And knowing there is a very strong chance that he will be found out and ultimately killed. And yeah. 
it's so fascinating to pick this character apart and see how he changes over the course of this movie as he's trying to out manipulate all these expert manipulators and you know he survives that attempt on his life and that final um dialogue scene between um oh i'm blanking on his name the the lawyer the lawyer brother robert duvall yeah the robert duvall character where robert duvall's basically found out frankie and he's like you know back in the day warriors used to kill themselves and the, the emperor would take care of their families for life and then you get that shot later on of frankie in the bathtub with his slit wrists and yeah. it, it all comes together so powerfully it really punches you when it all comes together yeah i think i think the writing on on Gato's character here too with the slit wrist at the end is actually very poetic from that yeah because he knows there's no other way out it's either the easy way which is slitting of the wrist or it's the hard way which is going to be his murder and if he goes the hard way and he's murdered his family has nothing is the implication right so he kills himself with the with the understanding that the Corleones will care for his spouse and children in his absence. Yeah. So that's like the real push to take care of it yourself and this will all be over. Yeah. And I I kind of really dig this this character's arc. I mean it's 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 deeply tragic and really sad. But I think Gotzo pulls it off really beautifully. Yeah, I was I'm I'm very pleased with this nomination. Um, this is a great one. I would like to comment really quick, because um, I was thinking as soon as you said the SAG ensemble of this would have been a definite shoe in this year, but also think of 74 really quick. So yeah, it would have been this, it would have been Oregon Express. Towering see, Inferno. Yep, Towering Inferno, and then I'm thinking Woman Under the Influence and Claudine. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's an amazing ensemble lineup. Yeah. That's how I would have seen it. I could have seen it going that way. Yay, we agree. Yay. Two claps. Okay. All right. So anything else on Gatso? No. Brit, give me more. Okay. Give me more. So let's divert a little bit to Fred Astaire in The Towering Inferno. Mm-hmm. So this is his first and only competitive Oscar. He got an honorary Oscar in 1950. And going into this, he wins the Golden Globe and he will go on to win the BAFTA in an, another year. Um, mm-hmm. he, that's pretty much his only recognition. Uh, going or playing. I'm sorry, I'm losing my mind. In The Towering Inferno, Fred Astaire plays Harley Claiborne, uh, and he's a bit of a con man here in the uh, building as it is ablaze. So thoughts on Fred Astaire in The Towering Inferno? Um, I, I find, not to contradict what I said earlier where I like every single performance, I do like every single performance. However... I find it kind of funny that this is the performance out of all the men in Towering Inferno to get the love. Because while Fred Astaire is there and he's good, he is Fred Astaire. And that was his whole Oscar campaign was it's an it's it's time um, uh, campaign. And going into Oscar night, apparently from the research that I found, he was like the the shoe in to win. Like, it was his time, officially. Um, Focusing most on the performance, though, I think it's subtle, and I think it's good, but there's nothing in particular where he's just blowing me out of the water. Mm -hmm. Um, I think his, his, his quirks are very convincing, and I think what he's doing is very... 
um, very noticeable, but it's 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 nothing too showy. And if you're gonna be Fred Astaire in a movie about a built a, a, a the tallest building in the world catching right, on fire. I need you to fucking tap and shoot your ass through this thing and just camp it up and just know what type of movie you're in, a la airport. You know what I mean? Yeah. You go the full Maureen Stapleton or you don't even go. Right. Right. Um, I pretty much agree with you. Um, I don't know how many conversations about the Towering Inferno begin with Fred Astaire. Right. His performance. <laughs> um, I mean, he's perfectly okay. It's not a bad performance by any means, but I think he kind of gets lost in this movie for me. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really stand out in any way for me, like you were saying. Um, he's definitely not the first thing I think of. And I have a feeling that his whole nomination and campaign is because of who he was. Um, you know, he was Fred Astaire. He had never had a competitive Oscar nomination. And it was deep into his career and he had this opportunity and the Academy just kind of went with it. And I mean, it's cool that they recognized Fred Astaire, but um, it's a, it's just an okay performance for me. I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think it's once again, bad by any means, but yeah, I kind of, it's, it's an easily forgettable performance for me. Unfortunately, he has his little quirks and his little fun moments with his other cast members. But um, yeah, this is not, this is not Fred Astaire's uh, claim to fame. No, not at all. And I can guarantee Ginger Rogers spearheaded that fucking shit too. She was like, "Get him this win," you know what I mean? So, right. uh, I mean, good, good for him though. He finally got he finally got a competitive nomination. But um, he's good. But with this lineup, it's this is a make it or break it lineup. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nomination that I look at and I go, really over John Cazale, over Robert Duvall over mm. Bruno Kirby. Like, I could just keep naming the men from The Godfather, too. I'm just like, really? Right. So that's kind of where I am on it. Yep, same. So anything else on Fred Astaire? Nope. Rest in All peace, right. good, sir. Our final supporting gentleman from 1974 is Lee Strasberg, uh, nominated from The Godfather Part Two. This is his first and only nomination, and he does not get any wins going into this, but he is recognized at the New York Film Critics Circle, and at the Golden Globes, nominated as a newcomer, which I, I find cute, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. So Lee Strasberg in Godfather Part Two plays Hyman Roth, a business partner of Al Pacino's Michael Corleone, um, and Michael suspects Roth of trying to assassinate him, and while he's sort of investigating this internally, he continues his business relationship with Roth until he can find out what's going on. So their dynamic is pretty tricky. So thoughts on Lee Strasberg and the Godfather part two. First of all, his mama hate him. If she naming him Hyman, you might as well just name your kid pussy lips because that is like, I'm sorry. That's just all I can think about when I hear his character's name Hyman. Like who does that? That's just so mean. That's so mean. Um, regarding the performance, I think this is really good. I'm very, very surprised that this is, Strasberg's first and only nomination. Um, I do know that you're going to comment on the Golden Globe there, so I'm going to let you do it because I'll probably go off. Um, I uh, I really like this. I think it is a great sole nomination because it is just a dirty nomination in a way. 
What mm-hmm. I mean by that is that instead of it being like a, a career achievement or a it's his time type of nomination, the Academy was really able to focus in on the actual work he was doing here, which was in a way controlling the behind the scenes efforts of this family, like really being a character who can control the Corleones and the weirdest master touch. Am I making sense with that? Yep. So what I mean by dirty is the fact that some people will say it's a career where the Academy's like, "Uh uh-uh, we see what he's doing here. We're going to stick with it. So I dig it. Um, I, I, I really like this. Like, I really, really like this. And I don't have a single complaint about it. Except yeah. for the Golden Globe nomination here. Yeah, me neither. Um, so Lee Strasberg is um, a theater legend. Uh, mm-hmm. Co-founded the group theater in the 30s and like the actor's studio, I believe, in the 40s. And he was the acting teacher of, say, like Al Pacino and Ellen Burstyn and Jane Fonda and all these really great actors who we saw coming out in the late 60s and early 70s. And he didn't really have that big of a film career. So it doesn't surprise me that he this is his only nomination. He was definitely much more of a theater kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the only nomination thing doesn't surprise me. The Golden Globe thing for newcomer is just so funny, considering that he had been in the acting world and directing world for literally decades at this point. And yeah, this was, I guess, maybe his most major film performance. So maybe that's where they're coming from with Newcomer. But when I read Newcomer while doing my homework, I was like, oh, that's cute, Globes. Um, I guess I guess he didn't know who he was. But right. yeah, um, I on the performance, I think he's just remarkable in this. I think Lee Strasberg is absolutely practicing what he preaches in his technique and in his training of his own students, because Hyman Roth has this real introverted power to him. Like, it's not a huge, screaming, showy type of crime boss performance. But when you're in a scene with him, or when you're watching a scene that he's in, there is no doubt that you do not fuck with this motherfucker. Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you know what I mean? And even in that first, like, scene with Michael and Roth, where they're in Roth's home... And there is a weird detail that I picked up on while watching it this last time where Michael comes in and Roth is watching TV and Roth has like one of his legs like slinged over the armchair that he's sitting in, which is a total power move. Like he like he's literally like showing Michael his groin. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it is like a very intellectual measuring dicks. Yeah. And you know Lee Strasberg is completely in control of this character and knows every in and out. Like, this is the dude that basically co-founded, like, the method, you know, that other actors would go on to become famous for. So, yeah, this is a really great performance from Strasberg. I find it so complex in a completely different way from Gazzo and De Niro. You know what I mean? Like, each of these three Godfather performances are complex and juggernauts in their own way and Strasburg is I think really great here I think he's the ultimate villain without being showy right like you don't you're not sure for a while if Mm -hmm. Michael's assumption that Roth is involved could be wrong because he doesn't he doesn't show you that he's evil 
Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that it's that very introverted, very below the surface type of performing that the actor's studio will, you know, become famous for patenting. And to be honest with you, I am very surprised that he didn't win this year with how many members of the actor studio were in the Academy and them knowing who Lee Strasberg is. Um, not that I believe in it, in it's his, his or her time nominations or wins or career wins, but this is one that I'm surprised didn't win, especially yeah. losing to a newcomer like De Niro at that time. Um, it, it, it does go to show you that there are moments where, the Academy will go for the performance, not the politics, and good for them for showing that, but very surprised that Lee Strasberg lost this. Right, considering how how vast his his uh, technique and his studies had become by this point. Yeah, and I'm sorry, maybe it's just me, but I find the Golden Globes thing to be super disrespectful. The newcomer thing? Yeah. Like, like yeah, on the one hand, I get it that he doesn't really have a big film career, and so if you want to say he's a newcomer, quote-unquote, to film, um, okay, I guess. But to say that co-founder of the group theater and actor studio three decades later is a newcomer, I just found that really bizarre. And so I just felt like, I uh, this is going to make it into the podcast, is what I thought when, when I read that. Yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> Any, anything else on Lee Strasberg? No, sir. All right, that was our final supporting guy. Yes, so moving on to leads, and boy, do we have a lineup for you. Um, Your nominees for Best Actor in a Leading Role are... Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. Albert Finney for Murder on the Orient Express. Dustin Hoffman for Lenny. Jack Nicholson for Chinatown. All right, so starting off with that winner of this year, we have Art Carney as Harry and Harry and Tonto. This is Art's sole nomination and win. Going into Oscar night, too, he had nothing but a Golden Globe win for Best Actor in a Drama. There was nothing else he had. Um, In Harry and Tonto, again, Art plays Harry, who is an old man who is forced to leave his home in New York. And essentially, it's a road trip movie. It's a buddy-buddy movie, but guess what? Y'all wanted a twist? Tonto's a cat. So, Brandon, what do you think about this? So I feel like Art Carney is one of those actors who gets some shit for his win. Um, Not so much because of the performance, but because of who he was nominated alongside. Like Uh when you're you're in in the lineup with Pacino, Hoffman and um, Nicholson and Fenny, mm. for example, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to shit on him, considering I would say Harry and Tonto is probably the most underseen of these five that we're going to yeah. talk about. And so um, I'm also going to say I think the hate is pretty much undeserved because I think Art Carney is actually really good in Harry and Tonto. I, su- I was kind of surprised by how much I really felt for this character and this performance, um, he gives a very um, authentic, sincere performance, I think. Like, I completely believe that this was a real person through and through. There was never really a moment where he took me out of it and I thought, oh, he's really going for his Oscar here. 
Like, I just completely bought into this story. And I guess maybe I had a little bit of a personal connection with this character. Like, I guess I kind of saw myself in this role, considering, like, my past with, like, my dog, who's no longer with me. And I guess I kind of just lent, I kind of lent myself over to the Mm -hmm. film and his performance. So I have absolutely no problems with, you know, his win or his nomination. Um, I don't think he deserves the shit that he's gotten because I think there's, there's truly nothing wrong with this performance. And if it works for you, it works for you. And it worked for me. So uh, how do you feel on it? I agree. It worked for me. Um, I'm very surprised at how much shit he gets for this, but you said it perfectly. It's not so much the shit of the performance. It's the shit of who he's lined up against with. Um, I've been very vocal before that one of my favorite times to be captured on film is New York in the seventies. And so I really appreciated the feel and the grittiness of gritty New York. And there's nothing like seventies filmmaking. Um, It's my favorite decade of film of American film ever. And this is everything. Why I, what I loved about it. Um, It's so random. It's so, you can find yourself somewhere in this film and I love that it, this movie focuses on this character while everyone else is a bit player. Like, I thought it was hilarious that Ellen Burson has second billing in this and has, like, three minutes of screen time. Half that took me by surprise. I, I know. I expected her to play a larger, like, I guess a supporting part in this movie. And she has, like, a scene and a half. And I yeah. thought that was so funny, especially considering this is the year she wins her Oscar. Yeah. So you do have, in one scene, you have the year's best actor winner and the best actress winner together. In two which... different movies. Which I don't think has ever happened since. I could be wrong. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, have I really have to dig some homework on that. Someone but... on Twitter will tell us. Yes. Um, I homework. Yeah, y'all, y'all can do it. Um, but no, I like what he's doing here. Um, he also has this, like, Grandpa Munster look about him. And I really dig that because, you know, I love all things Halloween. But, like, regarding the performance in general, I think you have such a burden on your shoulders when you're in every scene of a movie where everything is about what you do and the camera is really picking out every little single detail. And instead of cowering into a corner, he never lets up. And I think that's really beautiful of him in this. Um, I like this a lot. Yeah. There's you, I mean, you, you said it perfectly, but there's, um, there's something about this that he just doesn't deserve that hate and there's something about this that is just very magical and i like it yeah i like it too uh this movie really kind of worked for me in a very personal way that i was not expecting so um i dig it i'm perfectly okay with art carney i do not hate him whatsoever so i'm into it yes all right so our next nominee then is albert finney and i will never be able to pronounce this right hercule poirot yeah hercule poirot there we go. Nailed it. This is the second of five nominations. Um, I ain't going through all that shit right now. But he just went into BAFTA, or he went into Oscar night with a BAFTA nomination for Best Actor. And in, oh yeah, it's for the Murder on the Orient Express. Totally fuck this one up, Joseph. Um, anyway, in Murder on the Orient Express, again, Albert plays Hercule. And he is the detective on this train trying to find out who done it. That's the only way you can describe this movie. And what he does. So what do you think about Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express? I think he's just simply delightful. Um, So unlike Art Carney, Hercule Poirot is definitely a construct. Like, he is definitely not a real person. 
he is very much um, a fictional detective from, you know, Agatha Christie. And mm-hmm. he became famous in his own right in, like, the literary world of mystery fiction. And um, even though it's the polar opposite, where he is absolutely an engineered character, I think Albert Finney works with it really well. I think he really plays into the quirks and the her- the Hercule trademarks in a way that I find really funny. And I think really works for this character, because he is pretty comedic. Like he has moments where he definitely does kind of steal the spotlight and add a a shine of humor onto a situation. Sometimes it's with the way he speaks or his little mannerisms or the way he's trying to manipulate a witness or a suspect to try to get at the truth. And I, I, I find it really fun. I have uh, no problems with this nomination actually. Yeah. Um, you know, really throwing it back to our 74 episode, when we had to talk about Ingrid Bergman, I am not a fan of Murder on the Orient Express. I, I actually find this movie very dreadful to get through, but he is the shining light in this movie that I need to get through this movie. He is wonderful. He is funny. He is over the top. He is completely just out there. And he is such a fictional character that what Finney brings to it makes him nonfiction. He really, even though he's over the top, grounds him. And I I really appreciate that with a with a role that could have been just so cartoonish. Yeah, it could have like, been played very hammy. Like Inspector Clouseau is very cartoonish in the Pink Panther series. Mm, yep. That could have been that. And yeah, I, I think Sidney Lamette really balances the eccentricities of Poirot with the very realistic gravity of every other character and what's going on on this train. Yes. And I, I like this a lot. This is a good one. I'm actually very surprised that Finney wasn't more of a um, force to be reckoned with come Oscar night, because this is a very good one for him. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I move it on. Yeah. So this next one, I have a very special connection with. Um, Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce in Lenny. This is Dustin's third of seven nominations. And going into Oscar night, he had a Golden Globe nomination for drama, a BAFTA nomination, and a New York Film Critics Association nomination. So he didn't win anything, but he was nominated all over the place. And in Lenny, um, again, Hoffman plays Lenny, and it's about the story of Lenny Bruce the comic. His, His rise to fame, his shock with fame, his a uh, story about his wife, Honey, and their drug ab- abuse, all, and it's chronicle, it chronicles um, a certain point of his life to his death. And what do you feel about Hoffman and Lenny? I really dig it, actually. Um, Hoffman really pulls me along in a way that I think he, that really needs to happen with a movie mm-hmm. like this when you're playing a character as large as Lenny Bruce and considering Bruce was a performer it totally is um it totally makes sense how Hoffman would have to by the nature of this story pull it along as if you are literally in the audience of the show he's performing at and he has to keep your attention and keep um upending your expectations and shocking you a little bit and making you laugh and then shocking you a little bit more and I think Hoffman's really good at capturing that attention and really directing people's focus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I dig it. Yeah, I love, too, that this is such a departure for Bob Fosse from Cabaret to go to this. Um, I also appreciate that it was filmed in black and white because it gives it a sense of realism. Um, I just like black and white in general. I think it's so much more beautiful on celluloid. Um, but regarding Lenny, the reason I have such a connection with this is I am a stand-up comic. Like, it's, again, I've been very vocal. It's something I get paid to do. Like, I get paid to make people laugh. And I take a lot of inspiration through Lenny Bruce um, and through Don Rickles and through John Rivers. And these are three people who I look at as people not giving a fuck. They were not here to be PC. They were not here to candy coat shit. I mean, they said what needed to be said. And so I first visited, I first watched Lenny when I was living in LA um, back in 2011. And I don't think I grasped it as much then because that was before I was doing comedy. But I revisited this um, twice in the last year when, for me, when comedy started kicking off again or, or kicking in for me and then for this. And I enjoy it more and more. And what Hoffman is doing here is that he isn't Hoffman. He is Lenny Bruce. He is completely lost in this character. And I'm never once thinking, oh, my God, that's Dustin Hoffman. And a scene that really sticks with me, it's as much as I am very un-PC in my comedy. This is not a comic, comment, comedy commentary right now, and it is still the one word I'm not comfortable ever using, but that scene where he starts screaming the N-word on stage and says, yeah. no, 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 bring the lights up, let's talk about it. There is such a truth in what he is talking about that if this movie was released today, it, this would be torn to shreds. And it's sad because that's the message Lenny Bruce is getting through. Mm. And there's something about the way that Hoffman does this scene in particular that has stuck with me every time I go on, I go on stage. It's not so much what the scene's about. It's how he handles this character. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah, he is sort of like a compass in this movie, really directing you as if he is standing right in front of you on stage. And I think that's definitely a, a testament to Hoffman's talent yeah. and the power that he has as a performer that I think really lends itself to this uh, particular film. I don't know that much about Lenny Bruce outside of this film and then what I've seen on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and then just Wikipedia. Um, mm. I'm not really in the comedy world, but I totally believe that he is immersed within this story. Um, I think it's a really good outing for Dustin Hoffman. Agreed. I like it a lot. Yeah. Moving on? Yep. All right. Moving on to Jack Nicholson as J.J. Geddes in Chinatown. Man, revisiting Chinatown as well. All right. So this is Nicholson's fourth of 12 nominations. And going into this, Nicholson was the one to beat. He also won the Golden Globe for Drama Actors. So that was a tie there. Uh, he won the BAFTA, uh, National Society of Film Critics, and a New York Film Critics Circle Association win for Best Actor. And in Chinatown, again, Jack plays J.J. Geddes, and Geddes is um, a private investigator hired to solve a, again, kind of whodunit case, but dealing with a very rich man and a very mysterious lady. So what do you think about J.J. Geddes? Well, Jack Nicholson is J.J. in Chinatown. Um, I really like 
Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. I also just like Chinatown as a film. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily the most interesting character in Chinatown, but I think he's doing some really um, interesting work. Also kind of like similar to Dustin Hoffman, how he's really pulling you along in this story and you're really following him as he's unraveling this mystery. Um, And I think, you know, he's doing his typical Jack Nicholson thing where, you know, he's creating a totally three-dimensional character that you believe is absolutely a real person and you just want to be on site with him and uncover these clues. And I totally dig it. Um, I think he's, I don't know if it's, I'm not going to say it's his best performance, but I really do dig it. And I think he's doing exactly what this movie needs. I'm not sure that the movie is really giving him all that much to do outside of what we're seeing. Like, I feel like this is an example of Jack Nicholson maybe doing a little bit more than what's there. I don't know if that's coming off right. Because I think uh, Polanski and Town are, of course, you know, making a deeply complex movie with a lot going on in it. But this, I guess what I'm trying to say is this isn't very much, this isn't like a star role in the way that you would think of like a lead actor Oscar nominated film. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? I feel like I'm struggling to make this make sense and people are going to be mad, but um, yeah, it's a, it's, I I, I dig it, I guess is like the summary of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. um, I am a little, again, surprised that he was kind of like the, the guy to beat here. Um, I, I, again, we're just like murder on the Orient express. I am no fan of Chinatown at all um but i but what what jack is actually doing here for me is very complex because this is such a throwaway lead character where you're not so much interested in the character itself but if you're interested in anything it's the story and who exactly faye dunaway is in this um so what he's able to do with this here is essentially become the audience themselves and that's where I got to give him props because it is not easy to be the audience as a character. You can easily fade into the background. And even with how much he's got to do here, there's never a moment where I'm just like on his side as I am just witnessing everything around him. Um, it's good, but it's nowhere near Nicholson's best. Yeah. I think I kind of figured out what I was going for. Um, I think Chinatown is much more of a writer's and director's film than it is an actor's film. Like, yes, Nicholson, uh, Dunaway, Ladd, Houston, they're all turning out pretty good performances because they're, they're interesting characters in an interesting story. But I think this is a much... It's more of a master class in writing and directing than it is in acting. Yes. I guess. I don't know. People are probably still going to be mad, but that's kind of what I'm getting at here. You're good. You're good. Do you have anything else you want to add to Nicholson? Um, I don't think so. All right. So finally, our final nominee then is Al Pacino. By the way, side note, up until I was like 12, I thought you pronounced his name Pacacino. Okay. Real, real dumb of me. I know. I got laughed at by my own parents. Um, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Two. This is his third of eight nominations. And he was only nominated for the Golden Globe in drama, but he won the BAFTA, but not until 1976. Right. That's when De Niro and all of them were nominated, too. Mm-hmm. Which is very odd to me with how big of a film Godfather Two was that it took so long to get over the pond. 
Um, and a lot of people kind of agree with my sentiment here. This is the justice for Pacino here being put in the right category um, for this character because he was put in supporting for um, The Godfather 1. But in part two, Michael is officially head of the family. He's um, essentially becoming the Vito Corleone of his time. And he does not take any prisoners at all. This character's terrifying. What do you think of him in Godfather 2? I mean, talk about a transformation in yeah. this character of Michael Corleone. Consider if we if we lump in part one for a second, just how far he has come or how low he has sunk, depending on how you want to look at it, from scene one of part one to having his brother assassinated out on the lake. I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, I love that Godfather 2 gives us that small scene at the end that I think takes place even before the first one, because it's before Michael goes to war. And mm. it reminds us just how much this character has changed in so little time. And it's kind of startling in a way, because you yeah. see this this guy who had his, his whole future ahead of him. He was going to be, he was going to go off to war and come back and go to college and become an upstanding citizen in his own right and then he ends up becoming boss of his crime underworld family and he becomes a mover and shaker in a completely different way and it's a really interesting um i don't know uh argument against or for the american dream depending on how you want to argue it it's uh really fucked up in a way in a very good way, and I really dig it. Pacino is so damn dark in this, and he really goes to some really, some really troubling places. I think, and I love every every one-on-one -on -one scene that he's in. Like we mentioned, the one with Roth and the one with Gatso, where you can see the gears turning in Michael's head. And oh my God, the scene with Diane Keaton where she tells him that she had an abortion. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, Pacino is something else in Godfather Part Two. Yeah, talk about the year of the villains, because I feel like that's been a common theme with these guys here, really outside of Gaza that we've talked about. And this is no exception. This is, there's so much going on for Michael that you don't know whether to root for him or hate him or love him or fear him, and that is a testament to a great actor and a performance here that is, it, it, there's no words to describe what Pacino does here, essentially, I feel, because you don't know what to feel. And this is this beautiful acting. This is acting that I hope is still studied in schools because there, I mean, I'm generally at a loss of words. Mm -hmm. And there's not anything I hate about this at all. Right. And there isn't anything that I would have wanted changed, and there isn't anything that I feel needs to be changed. And yeah. I think it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have absolutely no complaints here. Al Pacino gives me everything. Uh, yeah. in this performance um if you if you lump in godfather one and two as one big story the the arc is just unreal um i think it was so smart 
of Coppola to put that little scene at the end that jumps back in time to remind you just how far he has come or how far he has fallen or however you want to define it because this character is so boundless in a way and there's yeah. so many different ways you can look at this character like you were saying at times you don't know whether you're supposed to really be rooting for him so to speak or if you should be sympathizing with him or pitying him or hating him and you can feel all those feelings in one scene like that's how complex this performance yeah. And this film is and i don't i have i keep finding myself at a loss for words because al pacino is just so goddamn good in this movie i'm glad we're both kind of on the same page here for that like we don't know what to say about it yeah yeah i agree <laughs> I yep guess, oh man what a lineup though what a lineup yeah <laughs> yeah you ready to get to the best part okay All so right. as a reminder your nominee nominees for supporting actor this year were robert de niro in the godfather part two uh jeff bridges in thunderbolt and lightfoot michael v gozzo in the godfather part two fred astaire in the towering inferno and lee strasberg in the godfather part two and my number five spot is going to go to jeff bridges for thunderbolt and lightfoot simply because he shouldn't be in this category. Um, enjoyed him in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, but doesn't belong in supporting. Yeah, um, I also agree that Jeff Bridges is at number five, as wonderful and kind of perfect he is in this. He just, he's in the wrong category, and that's no fault to him. Um, it was just where they put him, and unfortunately due to that, he can't win for me here. Yeah, uh, my number four goes to Fred Astaire. Um I keep forgetting that he was in The Towering Inferno. Um, he's perfectly okay in it, but um, this movie is just simply too big for a character this small, honestly. So he ha he's Fred Astaire, and there's no denying that, but um, performance-wise, he's got to be my number four this year. Well, my number four is actually going to Robert De Niro. Um, for me, my five and four were between the two category frauds. Um, De Niro, for me, though, is miles ahead of Bridges in perfection. Um, so therefore the battle of the frauds ended up being Bridges last and then De Niro. Um, I love that he won here, but I wish that he would have been in the lead category. Mm. Um, it's just, there's, he's just not working for me in this category. And because of that, I have to put him at, at four. Yeah. Um, my two and three is really tricky. I keep going back and forth. Um, I think I'm just going to go with what I have here. I'm going to put Michael Vigazzo at number three. Um, my heart really goes out to him in a way here in this movie, um, even though he is kind of a conniving person. But Gazzo gives this character a lot of um, flavor and soul that I can't help but feel something when his ultimate demise comes around in the movie. And that that shot of him in the bathtub with the blood and his slit wrists is quite a quite a punch so um he's gonna be my number three today heard well um this is weird putting him here because of how good five and four are but i do have to put fred astaire at number three um he would be last in this lineup for me if it were just about the lineup um but yeah you pretty much hit it on the head he's fred astaire in the towering inferno but other than that the only reason he's ahead of them again because category fraud 
Yeah. Um, so my runner-up for the year is going to be Lee Strasberg, and I'm going to give the win to Robert De Niro. Uh, Lee Strasberg is, you know, a god of the acting world. There's no denying that. The Globes can call him a newcomer all they want. They're silly. Um, he's really good here in The Godfather Part Two. It's a very intricate performance, and he definitely practices what he preaches. You can see that he is truly a master at creating a fully human character. And mm -hmm. he's scary as Hyman Roth, even if he's not showing you why he's scary. That's just the the introverted power of his performance that I think really comes through in the film. But Robert De Niro, um, he really has the narrative working for him. He has such a great evolution over the course of this movie, going from basically nobody on the streets of 1920s New York, or actually as a child first, you know, back in Sicily and then coming over to Ellis Island. But uh, of course, that's not Robert De Niro playing that part. But seeing the evolution of Vito Corleone and his own rise slash descent, as however you want to look at it, um, in a much smaller span of time, as say Al Pacino's character, um, is really, really remarkable. And I think Robert De Niro is doing a lot of really great work here and creating a moving performance with what he has to work with here, which is, you know, a pretty stellar script and a pretty stellar director and a pretty stellar film. So there's no denying Robert De Niro's power for me in this. And I don't find a category fraud because even though he is technically leading his section of the film, I think the young Vito stuff is secondary to what's going on in the main story in the present. So I'm not, I'm not disqualifying him. Of course, he's my winner for the year. No, heard that. I don't take that away from you at all. I think it's a very good win. Um, so I'm glad you gave it to, you know, it still worked for you there. Um, my final two are Michael Vigazzo and Lee Strasberg. Um, but I kind of knew where I was going with this right off the bat when we decided on 1974. Um, and I'm sticking with it. So my runner up is Lee Strasberg while my winner is Michael Vigazzo. Um, starting with Lee, I think you hit it on the nail or hit the nail on the head perfectly. Um, he's terrifying. You really don't know what's going on in his mind. And he's a villain that you truly fear on film. But Gazzo is giving me all the emotions. <laughs> like Goldie Hawn in The First Wives Club. He's an actor. He's got emotions. He's got all of them. And he's hitting everything here that I need. Um, I am very, very upset kind of in a way when people talk about this being a coattail nomination because there's so much more to it than that. Um, I'm glad the Academy recognized him and I think he deserved a better career, but he's definitely my winner here. Um, I like, I, his, his character is just so heartbreaking in the end. So I got to give it to him. Yeah. So, all right, moving on. So this is also, too, when I mentioned earlier, something that's never happened to me before. It's coming up. So I, when it comes up, I will start it off. But to go over the nominees again that year, you had Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Two, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, um, Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express, and Art Carney in Harry and Tonto. Um, I got to start off with Jack Nicholson in the fifth spot. While he's doing – well, like I said, you are the um, the audience here. And it could have been a character that was just merely the audience. Um, you kind of do get into what he's doing. But other than that, there's just so much more going around him. Like so much. Uh, I'm stumbling for words. Yeah, there's so much more just going on around him that like 
you kind of lose sight of what he's doing. So with that, I have to put him at five. Yeah, he's my number five, too. I feel like we're both struggling to really explain why. Because, like, yeah. Jack Nicholson's not bad in this. He's doing... He's Jack Nicholson. There's no denying that he's great. But I think this movie is a little bit more interested in what's going on from a directing and writing perspective. And mm-hmm. even though Jack Nicholson is good in this, I don't think it's his performance that makes the movie special. Yeah. Um, I agreed. Even though he is good there's i'm not saying he's bad he's not fifth place because he's bad it's simply because this movie's not not primarily interested in his performance i guess you could say so he gets my number five spot yeah agreed um number four i'm actually giving it to the winner that year of art carney um carney's good the movie is fun if you take it for what it is um but I know this is said a lot, but he just happens to fall into a really, really strong category where in the end, the last three are doing more for me. So I got to put Carney at four. Um, My number four is going to Dustin Hoffman for Lenny. This is a great lineup. So don't take me putting it Hoffman at four as saying he's bad because he's truly not. But um, Hoffman's doing really fun work here. I don't know that much about Lenny Bruce, but when the movie's over, I feel like I do. And, you know, that's a testament to Hoffman. But, yeah, it's that old thing. The other three just do something a little bit more for me. Oh, understood there. Understood. Um, Okay, so number three, I'm putting Dustin Hoffman. This character, I think what he's doing here is perfect. Again, I don't see Dustin Hoffman when he's forming. I see Bruce, and again, I have that connection with Bruce. But... There's something going on with these other two that I'm sure in any other year I could have seen. I could have given Hoffman the win here. Um, But I am putting Hoffman at three. Surprise, surprise. And what about you? I'm putting Albert Finney at number three. I find this character so damn charming. And he's so fun and provides a really good energy that I think this movie needs. Because, like you, I'm not super fond of Murder on the Orient Express as a film. Um, And I think he really brings it up in a way that this movie truly needed. And if a lesser actor had been playing this part and didn't really go the full Hercule Poirot, this movie would have suffered. But, um, yeah, he's got to be my three because of who I've got left. So this is where it is a first for me. Uh, I have left Albert Finney and Al Pacino, and I can't choose a winner. I don't know who to give it to. And I kind of feel like I have to bite the bullet and just do this quote-unquote live with you. And I truly am nervous because I don't know. Um, Pacino is fantastic. Pacino, there's no worse than what he's doing. And Finney is my prime example that if you do comedy right, you deserve all the wins. Brandon, help. <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Um, yeah, go first. Okay, so who I have left is Art Carney and Al Pacino. Um, Art Carney has to be my runner-up for the year. I don't think he deserves all the shit that he gets for winning this because I think he is giving a really sincere and beautiful performance in Harry and Tonto, and I really felt for it in a way that took me by surprise. But Al Pacino is simply otherworldly in The Godfather Part Two. Um I don't know what else I can say that I haven't already said when we spoke about him in his own segment. 
Um, there's no denying that he absolutely deserved the Oscar for me. Um, I don't know if that helps you in any way with your decision. No. <laughs> no. Um, I'm glad that you gave it to Pacino, though. That's a that's a really good one. Um, oh, God. Gun to head. All right. Gun to head. I got to get Pacino the runner-up and Finney the win. Um, I, I honestly, this is probably the hardest of my decisions so far up to this moment. Um, Pacino is fantastic and deserves to win. And without a doubt should have gotten an Oscar for Corleone, but uh, Finney is fantastic. He's the only, he's the only thing that totally redeems Orient Express from being just a trash bucket of a movie. And he's funny and he's so poignant in his comedic timing and I honestly don't understand how he wasn't more of a heavy hitter going into this, but they're both so good, and I, I don't want to tie it because I want to get through a bonus episode on that something. I'm sticking with it. Pacino's my runner-up, and Finney is my winner. Okay. Oh, I think I'm our sweating. listeners are thoroughly shook. Shooked. That was, that was a good one. Yeah. It's hard. That was a good year. That was a really good year. And this is going to be a surprise bonus episode, so we're just going to drop this shit on you. Right. So hope you guys I hope you guys liked it. Let us know what you thought about the boys. Yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do some boys in the future. Maybe let us know what boys you want us to talk about. I like to do boys. We can do more boys. Yeah. That sounds boys weird. are fun. <laughs> um, did my did my uh, choices take you by surprise? Um, I had a feeling when you were struggling that you were ultimately going to go with Finney, especially after I said Pacino. If I had said Art Carney, would you have said Pacino? Honestly, probably still would have gone with Finney. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I was surprised that Carney was so high for you. Um, it just worked that, for me. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it just hit me in a way that kind of stuck with me. So he had to be so my runner up. What about for uh, supporting? Where did you see me going there? Um, when I knew you were disqualifying De Niro and Bridges, I, I did not see a stare for you, and Gotso seems to be that sort of more heartfelt performance that I saw you going for, so it mm -hmm. didn't surprise me that you would go for Gotso, considering you were disqualifying the other two. Well, I will say for you, De Niro did take me by surprise. It didn't shock me as much. I thought you would have gone for Gotso, to be honest. Um, but I knew Pacino after you reviewed it, that was going to be yours for sure. Yeah. Okay. So my original lineup when I, before I had revisited, um, uh, Harry and Tonto actually just today actually was Nicholson at five, Hoffman at four, Pacino at three, Carney at two, Finney at one. And then I was like, wait a minute. No, I can't do that. And then the more we were talking about Pacino, I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then it was like truly like, oh, I didn't know what to do with Carney once I put him at three mm -hmm. or four, wherever I, or at four where I put him. It just I changed a lot with this and I couldn't decide. Yeah, I do that all the time. Couldn't decide. Well, boys and girls, I'm Joey Gentile. And I'm Brandon Stanwick. And this has been Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Oscars per decade, per category. And this has been the class of 1974, the boys edition. Yay, the boys. 
again. Let's hear it for the boys. All right. We will see you later. Hope you enjoy it. And see you guys in season three. Bye. Bye-bye.